We had that great uh, song or poem of uh, praise from Psalm 104 earlier on in the service. I want to give you a slightly different poem now. Um, you might wonder why on earth I'm, I'm doing this, uh, but bear with it. I think you'll, you'll get the gist um, once we get there. This is a poem called Hire Car. Double park, don't lock the door. Push the pedals through the floor. Give it loads and then some more. It's a hire car, baby. Grip the stick and grind the gears. Watch the distance disappear. Never yours in a thousand years. It's a hire car, baby. Show this motor no respect. Bump it, dump it, call collect. What else do the firm expect? It's a hire car, baby. Pray the person who hired it last didn't drive it quite so fast. Its best days are in the past. It's a hire car, baby. Drive the loser anywhere. Drive it like you just don't care. Put it down to wear and tear. It's a hire car, baby. Rent it, dent it, bang it, prang it, bump it, dump it, scorch it, torch it, crash and burn it, don't return it, lost deposit, let them earn it. It's a hire car, baby. Now I'm hoping that you have never, if you've driven a hire car, you've never driven it like that. <laughs> uh, not least if you're like me and you're a tight Scotsman. And you don't take out the extra insurance, so you've got this massive excess hanging over your head as you drive. But I think as we look at this issue of creation care this morning, that poem's a pretty good metaphor for what we've done to this planet, isn't it? It's ours to use for however long we've got it, uh, however we like. And it's not going to last anyway. And everyone else is abusing it. And at the end of the day, we're only going to hand it on to someone else, the next person who takes it for a spin. So it's not really our problem. And whether you're with the climate change campaigners like David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg, who tell us that climate change is, quote, the biggest problem humanity has faced ever. Or you're one of the skeptics, maybe, who question some of the data that the campaigners keep throwing around as if they're absolutely 100% fact, even though the data is actually quite young and in some cases involves a fair amount of guesswork. Or you're one of the confused <laughs> who'll one night sit down and watch Netflix, see uh, Spiracy documentary and vow never to eat fish again. And then the following week, we'll read an article a very well-respected report on fish stocks that suggests that actually they're rising in some parts of the world and things aren't quite as doom and gloom as Seaspiracy makes out. That was the case for me, <laughs> doing both of those things. I wonder where you're coming at it from. Well, however you're coming at it, it's clear that environmental issues have become a hot topic, both figuratively and literally. You don't need me to tell you that. But I do need to tell you that concern for the environment is not a new thing. God has been talking about this since the very moment he made the world. No sooner had he pasted the sun in the sky and hung the stars in space, but he gave the first humans a theology of ecology. And I just want to run you through that this morning briefly. And it's my conviction, my hope, my prayer, actually, that as I do that, it will give us great motivation, probably the greatest motivation you could ever have as a human being, to care for all that God has made.
Here's lesson one on creation care. And it's the obvious one. The earth is the Lord's. I mean, who does the earth belong to? The creatures or the creator? Well, Genesis 1, verse 1, makes it pretty clear, I think. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made it all. Rainforest and rivers, mountains and oceans, they were all his idea. So it's no surprise that Psalm 24, verse 1, declares that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And yet, the earth was given to us. For what purpose? Well, firstly, to meet our needs. As Genesis 1, this time in verse 29, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then in the very next verse, God gives the birds and the animals a slightly different instruction. He gives them every green plant for food. So animals get the seed-bearing plants and trees, while, uh, sorry, humans get the seed-bearing plants and trees, while the animals get the leafy ones without seeds. Why? Well, so that we can plant, uh, we can grow more plants and trees, of course. So right from the very start, cultivation is practically encouraged by God's creation design. And the more perceptive of you might also spot it that vegetarianism seems to be encouraged by God's design here as well. As it looks like in Genesis chapter 1, everyone's a vegetarian. And while I can totally appreciate why some people may make that choice, as we flip forward to Genesis 9, we find that God doesn't actually prohibit the eating of meat. As he says to Noah and his sons after the flood, he says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've heard that somewhere before, haven't we? Back in Genesis 1. It's reinstituted, that command. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So there's no hint of Bambi mother theology here. Have you seen the film Bambi? I was expecting many of you have seen the film Bambi. Um, So the hunters hunters show up, don't they? And what do they do? They shoot Bambi's mother. Sorry, actually, if you haven't seen Bambi. I should have given a a big spoiler alert there. Uh, But but if you're a a seven-year-old and and you're watching that, um, you're watching Bambi, or you're a 47-year-old re-watching it, then um, the message is clear. People bad, nature good. Hunters bad, deer good. So we must never hunt or kill animals. But ecological studies have found that if you pursue that kind of philosophy exclusively, then the next thing you know, the deer are starving to death because there's way too many of them and not enough food. And ecological studies have also shown us that there's no one perfect ecological equilibrium. Certainly not one that doesn't involve us because we're part of nature too. In other words, the romantic idea that nature is good and all culture and cultivation is bad, is, it's a fiction. Whereas what God is saying here in Genesis 9 is actually much more credible and realistic 
way of doing things and understanding things. God knows what he is doing when he provides for us through the fruit of the earth and the animals. But in doing it, he is also, secondly, calling us to rule over and look after the animals in the earth. So back to Genesis 1, verse 28. God gives the first humans dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We have dominion, we have to rule over the world that God has made. And, uh, and before we get ahead of ourselves, God shows us in the next chapter what that rule should look like. Genesis 2, verse 15, we're told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Hebrew word for keep there literally means keep clean, guard or preserve. In other words, dominion is not domination. We don't have a license to use our God-given power and authority to oppress the land and the living creatures or to extract all the natural resources that we might want for our wealth and status and pleasure and comfort. We've been given a, a sacred responsibility by God to take care of all that he has made. In fact, God takes this issue so seriously that throughout the Old Testament, he gives really, really specific instructions to his people about stewardship of the environment. So Leviticus 25, he basically goes, no soil abuse, right? You, you give the land a break. You rest it every seven years. Or Deuteronomy 20, he says to folks who are waging war, besieging a city, don't put an axe to the trees, the fruit-bearing trees. Don't you dare touch them. Even though you're at war, you don't chop them down and use them as a battering ram. I protect the living things, so so should you. And in Proverbs 12, he basically says, do you want to be wicked? No? <laughs> Good then take care of animals. Don't abuse animals. Only wicked people do that. And so if we were starting to feel a little bit of a sigh of relief that God doesn't prohibit the eating of animals in Genesis 9, I want to say, in fact, the Bible wants to ask, do we even think about the meat that we're eating? We can't treat animal life as, oh, well, who cares? It's just, just for us, for our purposes. Because if God cares passionately about all life, including animal life, so should we. So therefore, we should care about how the meat that we eat is produced, the condition in which the animals are kept, the way in which the animals are killed. It's incredibly challenging. For those of us who love eating meat, those carnivores amongst us, it's incredibly challenging what the Bible has to say about this. We need to think this through. There should be no animal abuse, no soil abuse, no tree abuse, no environmental abuse. God says, everything in my creation is mine. So I want you to take responsibility for it and respect it. Subdue it, rule over it, work it. <laughs> yeah, use it, yes. But protect it and care for it. And to remind us of that great calling, God has ensured, thirdly, that the earth speaks to us. Do you know 
that this planet talks to us. Don't worry, I'm not going crazy. Let's look at Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now you might just say, oh, that's just more poetry, Ken. No, don't do that. Listen to a waterfall. Listen to the music. Yes, the music of the sea. Watch a sunset. Look at the skies, the stars in the night sky. And as you do that, no matter what you were taught in philosophy 101, something within you stirs, doesn't it? You start to go, this has meaning. I know this isn't an accident. Maybe there is a God. Why does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us it's because creation is speaking to us. The stars, the waterfall, the animals, the trees, they have a voice. And they are telling you about the glory of God. And it's your job, it's our job as stewards of creation to make sure that they keep speaking unhindered. That we do not let that voice be snuffed out. It's your job to let a waterfall be a waterfall. And a tree, a tree, and fish, fish. It's your job, actually. It's our job to join the choir and sing with them. For ultimately, to care for creation is to honor God's glory. I really want to underline this. I think this is the major motivation for us in this, in this whole area. Uh, so I'm not bombarding you with statistics. You can go to the internet and find loads of statistics about how bad things are in terms of our world. It's not even why I'm saying, oh, come on, think of the children. Think of your grandchildren. Think of those to come. Leave something good and workable for them. Or, or even, I'm not even going, think of the developing world. And that is a massive issue. So often, in terms of climate change, it's them that suffer most. Our excesses have massive consequences for the poor. It's always the poor who bear the brunt of things most. And that's a big issue. And do research that more. I wish I could say more about that this morning. Go to Tearfund's website or Arosha. And you'll find, find some really great resources to, to, to get yourself genned up on that. And I want to encourage you to do that. But I, I want to say... We should be more motivated than anyone else in the world about this because to care for creation is to care for God's glory. <laughs> Nature is speaking to us. Psalm 19 verse 2 about the glory of God. And so therefore not to care, uh, to destroy, waste, pollute and endanger creation is to diminish God's glory. And not only that, and it's to actively work against God's plan for the earth. Because fourthly, God has a great plan for saving the earth. Back to Genesis 9. Sorry about all the flicking about, but we need to try and get the big uh, picture here. God in Genesis 9, he says to Noah and his boys, he says, Behold, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And not only with you, not only with the humans, and this covenant is established with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. 
And not only that, we could read on to verse 13 where God goes further and he, he puts the first rainbow in the sky and he says, this is a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So if you've ever watched a David Attenborough documentary, I suspect many of you have, then you'll know he loves the earth. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that David Attenborough loves the earth. But he does not love it nearly as much as God does. God loves this place. He loves everything he's made. And so he has gone as far as making a covenant with the earth. Now, what does that mean? Put this on your tongue. Put this on the tongue of your mind and your, your heart and, and, and roll it about, chew on it. God never calls anyone into a covenant relationship unless it is a saving relationship. So when, when God makes a covenant relationship with the Bible, God is saying, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because of evil and of sin. But I am going to step into a relationship with you and I'm going to save you from that sin. So, Whose sin is God saving the animals and the physical environment from? I mean, it's not the trees and the, and the bears and the seas that sin, is it? We know whose sin it is. And God, God makes it clear in Genesis 8 uh, when he says to Noah in that chapter, he says, never again will I curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, God is promising to save the world from our sin. To lift the curse that came on the earth that we saw last week as Dave preached on Genesis 3. God is going to save the world from human sin. And so when Jesus died, it wasn't just us he was saving. He was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 verse 20. And in that Romans 8 reading that Julie read so well for us, we're told that therefore the creation eagerly waits for the sons of God to be revealed. Nature cannot wait for you and for me to be made perfect, to be fully and finally saved at the end of time, because at that point, Nature will be saved and perfected. Which is why the Bible tells us over and over again that all history is headed not towards Christians being sucked up into heaven, but a new heavens and a new earth to be revealed. The earth will be made new. All of which should give us great confidence about saving the earth, shouldn't it? Because the earth will be saved, not by us, but by someone much more competent. And he is inviting us to care for his planet just as much as he does. Do you see? Let me try and pull this together. Do you see this theology of ecology? It shows us that this planet is not a higher car. It's not given to us by some nameless, faceless corporation uh, to just use and abuse however we like. But it's given to us by the God who made us and made himself known to us and loves us. This is much more actually like uh, being handed the keys to your best friend's sports car. Brand new, they've just got it. 
but this happened to me a few um, years ago. Uh, and so I ended up driving uh, this, this thing, we'll put, put it up on the screen for a couple of weeks, and it was incredible fun, I've just got to uh, say. Uh, although I'd actually just started working for the church at the time. Um, and so, so I was so embarrassed to be driving this, I parked it around the corner for every meeting I turned up to. I, I didn't want people, oh, look at the flash new youth worker. Um, but because I knew and liked and, and loved the person who had given it to me, I drove that car, like I've never driven a car before or since, I think, with such care. And that's what the Bible's theology of ecology calls us to do with God's creation, to love him, to glorify him by caring for and handling what he has made exceptionally well, with intricate thought and passion. So what? What do we do about all of this? I think we need to respond to this challenge in three ways. Personally, corporately, and politically. Personally, what do we need to do? Something. We need to do something, don't we? Uh, some of you are way ahead of the curve on this and have much to teach the rest of us. Because uh, I, I suspect that some of us are maybe coming from a standing start on this. But wherever we're coming from on it, we need to take a step forward in obedience to the Lord. Now that might have to actually start by simply repenting of our cynicism and our hard-heartedness in the past. Uh, certainly, I've, I've had to do a fair bit of this as I've, I've read about this. I have to um, actually own up to you. I've, I've never heard a sermon on this topic ever, let alone given one. And maybe I should have owned up to that at the start of this. But uh, I've done so much reading, probably more so than uh, for any other sermon before over the last couple of months. I've been so convicted. I've really had to confess um, so much sin in this area. And one of the other things that you find yourself having to do as you start to take this seriously is, is you balk at some of the challenges that it might involve. The major gains in reducing our personal CO2 emissions are to be had in really costly initiatives like getting an electric car or changing our boiler or our fridge to an eco-friendly one. But when you think about what this is about, this is about the glory of God. And you think of the, the cost that he paid in order to save us and, and all creation, the cost of his own son. Folks, we know that doing the right thing, it always involves a cost. Now, not all of us can afford to make such big steps forward, and our problem might be wondering what difference cutting down your meat consumption or turning down your heating or insulating your house uh, so you can turn down your heating or recycle your rubbish more effectively or cycling to work or planting a tree or breaking off our love affair with uh, single-use plastics. What good might that actually do? What difference would that actually make? I mean, it all seems so futile, doesn't it, in the grand scheme of things? But for the Christian, no action is wasted. No obedient action is wasted. Revelation 14 talks about our deeds following us. Our actions have eternal consequences. Especially if they're done to love and to honor the Lord. So do something. 
Make a step forward. Do it today, this week. And let's think about what we can do together corporately. Catherine Hayhoe, internationally renowned Christian climate scientist, says, she always, he says there's, there's a number of things that we need to do, but number one that we need to do as a church is talk about it. Which sounds like a bit of a backward step from actually doing something about it, doesn't it? But a study was recently released which found that talking about it, the simple act of having a conversation about these issues, initiates a positive feedback effect. How? Well, first of all, the more we talk about it, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we care. And the more we care, the more we'll talk about it. Uh, and so they, they say these findings suggest that eventually our climate conversations with friends and family and church family enter into a pro-climate social feedback loop where, where those of you who are ahead of us on the curve here uh, draw those of us lagging behind in with their passion for creation care and stories of, of, of what you've done, your experiences of engaging with this issue. Uh, and, and, and advice in how to actually make those steps forwards and make a difference. So talk about it with your midweek group. I talk about it after church as we spill out onto the uh, front there or down onto the grass and, and join uh, with others who've been involved in the children's work. Um, yeah, do ask, how's your, how's your week? How's it, how's it going? Long time no see, whatever. Uh, but, but ask one another, what are you going to do about this challenge? And then finally, politically. And clearly, we're, we're really small players, aren't we, in, the global, uh, in a massive global issue? But this is a really significant year for the UK. Because uh, actually, it's, it's this very week we're hosting the G7 summit down in Cornwall. And later on in the year, the COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, is going to be held in my hometown of Glasgow in November. So you can make your voice known by writing to your MP or taking a part writing to the Prime Minister um, or simply by signing the Time Is Now petition, calling on our government to set the world an example by unleashing a clean energy revolution that protects and restores and expands our green and wild areas and increases support to those who are most vulnerable. Remember, it's the poor who always suffer the most when it comes to this. Uh, but, but sign that petition, and it, it will say, we really want the most vulnerable uh, to be uh, supported from the impacts of climate change, both home and abroad. Whatever you do, though, whatever steps you take, we take as a church family, Let's do it all for the glory of God and the honor of his name. And for that reason, uh, we want to do it trusting that he is the one who is going to save our world. And so uh, we need to pray about this, don't we? And that's what we're going to do. Our Father God, you are the creator of all that we see, all that we have, and all that we are. The goodness that we see all around us shows your character, your care, and your love. Help us to be diligent in caring for your creation and the people who dwell within it. Make us beacons for the light of Christ in all that we say and do. Amen.